Hey there, listeners, Lacey here. Before we get this episode started, there are a couple things you should know. First, this is our pilot episode. It is the very first thing we ever recorded, and even though we've made some changes, we've learned some stuff along the way, we still want to share it with you so that you can be part of the journey from the very beginning. This episode includes a really nice explanation of what the library game is and how it started, and you'll also hear a lot of mic bumps, some audio glitches, and a slightly different format from what the future episodes will be. This episode was also recorded in early 2022, and there is an ill-timed joke that will make that really clear, so sorry in advance about that. All that being said, thank you for joining us on this journey, and welcome to the first episode. Lucky number two. Seventeen. Okay. Hello and welcome soon to be faithful listeners of the Library Game podcast. It is an eclectically indecisive book club. I'm Amy. I'm Lacey. And we are going to be your guides in this thing that we do call the Library Game. Now, what is that? It is a method of unburdening yourself from that terrible question of what do I read? next. It is something that we started doing, I think, back in high school-ish. Yeah. Yeah. And it is a methodically random way of picking a new book. And it goes a little something like this. You go to the library of your choice, and you count the number of rows of bookshelves that are there uh, within any given section that you are willing to read. And then you take that number and you pick one. From there, you pick the number of sections on that shelf, and you pick one. You take the number of shelves in that section, and you pick one. Lastly, you count the number of books on that shelf, and you pick one. And that's that's it in a nutshell. You have to read that book. By law, <laughs> you have to read that book. And so we do have a quick example uh, for you where we picked the book for this episode. Uh, you are picking the number. What are my options? Uh, 1 through 41 to start. I'm going to go with 17. 17. I'm going to start over here. Okay. So 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. I'm going to go with lucky number 2. 2, okay. 1, 2, or 3? 1. All right. We've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. You have 14 options. This is like the big one. Yeah, this is the this is you picking the book. Nine. Nine. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Our lucky one is Death Comes to Pemberley. <laughs> Death Comes to Pemberley by P. D. James. So those numbers, 17, 2, 1, 9, we are using what we like to call the RSSB coordinates. Those are your way of navigating the maze of endless titles to find the book to read. So those are the RSSB coordinates for Death Comes to Pemberley by P.D. James at the library that we went to to pick a book. 
like I said, we started doing this back in high school uh, because we would get into little ruts and we wouldn't do it all the time. You know, sometimes you have a book that you want to read, but when you just don't know what to read, this was our way of solving that problem. Yeah. So one of us would call the other person up and literally give them, pick a number, one through 17, whatever, and narrow us down to the next book. And I, I think we use this for not just books. We, we've used it for lots of things over the years, but that's where it started. Yeah. Back when Blockbuster was still a thing. I exactly. think we movies as well. Yeah. Exactly. And I don't, I don't remember when we stopped doing that, at least for books, but um, I'm excited to pick it back up again. Yeah. So I, I remember when you, I think you did it yourself one day and then you called me up and you were like we should do this like yeah as a podcast and so here we are but so what was the like what drove you to do that because you you were thinking about that the other day right well so i've i've been in a reading rut lately i have my comfort areas of like sci-fi and oh yeah fantasy and that's kind of all i gravitate to but then i get in this cycle of where i've either read a bunch of books that are kind of the same thing or I've got a long list, but none of them seem like interesting enough for me to pick that one. And what I end up doing is just going back to like all the same old series that I've read over and over again. And it just got boring. Yeah. Well, and that's I I think that's funny because I am not a rereader of books. And so I just stop reading. (laughs) (laughs) But it's the same kind of rut, you know, where you stop and you're like, well, now what? Because there's too many choices. Yeah. Yeah, well, and that that's interesting that you say that because the other thing that I was thinking about when we were talking about creating this podcast was this article that I read years ago by this guy named Barry Schwartz. Mm-hmm. And Barry Schwartz kind of set his career around this idea of the paradox of choice. That's actually the name of his book. He's done TED Talks and stuff. But it's this idea that as the number of choices that you have increases, your satisfaction with the choice you make decreases and that's why it's kind of a paradox because you would think the more options i have the happier i'm going to be with whatever i end up with Mm -hmm. you know because it's more likely that there's something that suits me Uh, but what he talks about is that your expectations for how good whatever product it is it increases with the more choices you have because you're like if there's a hundred options there's got to be one that's perfect and so yeah it's not like what is it the world is your oyster but then now I expect everything to be gourmet food. Yeah, yeah. I've never heard that, but it sounds right. Isn't that the phrase? I really hope that's the phrase. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but there's it, it, there's a whole lot. Like I said, he's built his whole career around this, but it's all about like choice overload and choice paralysis. And then you have FOMO about, well, I really kind of liked that option too. And what if the one I picked, like that one would have been better. So it's it's just this whole idea that too much choice makes you anxious and unhappy. And our whole lives are basically infinite choice at yeah. this point with books and movies and TV and clothes and toys and yeah. whatever. Well, I think a perfect example of this choice paradox is what do you want for dinner? Oh, my gosh. Every yeah. couple in the world has had this argument. Yeah. What, every week? <laughs> like, of, you know, you, you have all these options of restaurants or what to cook or, you know, whatever. And you are paralyzed yeah. by that choice. Everything sounds good. Nothing sounds good. Yeah. And it just turns into, I don't care and blaming the other person for not yeah. picking for you. Or like Netflix. How many times have you sat down to watch something and you spend 
30 minutes scrolling through Netflix trying to pick a show and yeah. then you get frustrated because you haven't picked something so then you go back and like watch another episode of The Office or something. Yeah. Or you get you start going down through those lists and Netflix just goes well what about this? Like it, <laughs> it gives you like a pity choice. <laughs> I think it's the algorithm trying to help you out there. Yeah. And But I mean you know narrowing it down I know that I spend a lot of time on Netflix in that, you know, what's the U.S. watching right now? Those top 10 things or whatever. So That's I, true. it makes a lot of sense. That's true. But anyway, so this this game, I think, is a way to get out of that to start enjoying reading more and not being so disappointed and like, oh, I spent two days trying to find the next perfect read and then 10 pages in, it wasn't exactly what I wanted, so I gave up. Yeah, and it also, I think it takes a lot of that pressure off of the book to be good yeah uh, it's the whole the your yeah. expectations are not sky high and so yeah. you can actually enjoy something that maybe you wouldn't have yeah thought you'd like yeah not to get too far into it but i remember one of the first or second times that i remember doing this i picked i ended up getting a historical fiction book and thinking this is going to be too close to like nonfiction. i'm not going to like it and i loved that book so we can i don't know maybe i'll talk about it some other time <laughs> we have we have things to do so next up we're gonna do our first bit this is gonna be a continuing thing on the podcast we're gonna do something called by the cover so what we're doing is when we get the book we are going to make that judgment that you are not supposed to do we are going to judge this book by the cover looking at the cover of this book what we have here is a very old style parchment colored background Death Comes is in regular print, too, and then Pemberley in nice, beautiful uh, <laughs> cursive, right? And then we have a old-fashioned horse-drawn coach carriage type thing almost all the way off the cover. Uh, it's zooming by. You can see a hand with the ribbons of the, of the dress kind of trailing, giving this idea of urgency, of haste, right? Uh, and then the author's name across the bottom, P.D. James. And on... The back cover, we have a giant picture of the author, and I think she looks like Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> and that was one of my very first thoughts, but also I, I wrote this down. I wrote that the author looks like she's someone who could absolutely dunk on you with words. She looks like this sweet old lady, but like at the same time, she could cut your shit up. So my my reaction, I did not think Mrs. Doubtfire. I actually thought that she kind of reminded me of Queen Elizabeth. Okay. And I have this sort of longstanding joke about Queen Elizabeth that stems from, I don't know why, but somebody one day long ago was like, hey, if Voldemort existed in the real world, who's Voldemort and who are his minions? And this spawned this whole speculative conversation. Yeah. And most people's answer, this was like a few years ago, but most people's answers were things like Putin is Voldemort. And I was like, no, no, no. Nay, nay, that is too obvious. Mm. My answer was Queen Elizabeth. And my reasons were, one, if you look at her, she is sly. There is something else going on. <laughs> that sparkle in her yes. eye. Yes. <laughs> also, there are clearly life-lengthening somethings happening mm. for this person. She is the longest reigning I British I really monarch. hope nothing happens, like, soon. Yes, I'm so sorry, Karen. Yeah, knock, knock on, on wood. wood. <laughs> There's pictures of this woman out there where you're like, she has secrets. Like, she for sure has secrets. She's lived way longer than she should. 
And I think that she could be Voldemort. She's, like in she, that scenario, well, she has, she's she has some hallows out there. Is, yeah, is not yeah, the hallows, she's the uh, Horcruxes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay. So uh, anyway, that's what this picture made me think of <laughs> Queen Elizabeth as so, Voldemort. Um, <laughs> So some of the things that I thought immediately looking at this cover, I'm like, okay, so with the carriage, I'm trying to remember when cars were invented. Those, it was like, so, <laughs> so like I, I put in here late 1800s, early 1900s is when I thought the setting was going to be. And I assumed that we were going to have a clever, sharp-witted female protagonist okay. it was, was my thoughts, right? And I, I wrote down here, I'm torn between thinking the tone is serious or more light like I couldn't tell like the color scheme and stuff on the cover it seems like more old school vibe yeah right but at the same time I was like the word cheeky keeps coming to mind okay so that was kind of where I was at with that here was I'm going to tell you what my prediction for like the whodunit and the story itself just based on the cover okay an heiress to a fortune dies and while all the family is gathered to figure out, you know, the will and who's going to inherit and all this stuff, a murder happens. Okay. And so the murder complicates this vying for the inheritance of this fortune. My whodunit was not the butler. That's too obvious. <laughs> it's the lady's maid. Okay. So that was where I was at. And then I also wrote down, I bet this novel is what Bridgerton wants to be. Okay. <laughs> Which I don't know if it's just because Bridgerton's on the mind, you know, as as being a popular thing right now. But that's that's kind of where I was. Where were you at with this? I did not think that hard about it. Um, <laughs> I really spent a lot more time thinking about Queen Elizabeth <laughs> than anything else. I think you, you might spend more time thinking about Queen Elizabeth than a lot of people in the <laughs> Maybe. US. Maybe. So my, my thoughts were that it was going to be a very stereotypical, kind of like trashy dime store novel. Like, okay. That's what I was expecting. But, but, caveat, because of her sneaky looking picture, I also thought it's not going to be the butler. I thought it's going to be a woman. Mm-hmm. And everybody's going to write her off because she's the woman oh, okay. in the story. Okay, so a little subversion of expectation there. Yeah, and that's about as far as I got. Okay. I, I did think, like, based on the cover, my guess was that there was actually going to be, like, a mystery carriage was going to come careening down the street and there would be a body in it and nobody knew, like, who it was oh. or where it came from. Okay. That's what I thought the mystery was going to be. Okay. And so then we read the inside cover. Yeah. Mm. yeah. <laughs> okay, so go go ahead and go ahead and read that for us. I, I bet you anything... Whoever might be listening right now, they probably thinking, already know what this is about. Exactly, and you they're like dumb, you idiots, dumb girls. Like, okay, go ahead, go ahead and read it. Oh, and we haven't said it yet, but it needs to be said that we are both avid readers. I would say yeah. that's applicable. Yeah, um, we are not well read. No, we have our wheelhouse of our preferred genres, mm-hmm. and they are very like entertainment focused i would say i don't read a lot of literature <laughs> no no not not the kind of things that english majors really yeah. chew into i no it's it is definitely like fantasy escapism yes uh, i think i steer a little bit more towards the sci-fi than you do but we are both sci-fi fantasy like that is yeah. our that's our happy place yep. yeah yep so uh but yeah woefully underread voracious readers how about that that is Yep, I'll take that. Okay. Okay, so uh, here's the inside cover of this book. A rare meeting of literary genius. P.D. James, long among the most admired mystery writers of our time. I will say I had no idea who P.D. James was. Nope. 
draws the characters of Jane Austen's beloved novel Pride and Prejudice into a tale of murder and emotional mayhem. So this was the point that we felt stupid. Yeah. Which you love when you when you pick up a new book. Yeah. Um, so it's it's 1803, six years since Elizabeth and Darcy embarked on their life together at Pemberley. I'm going to note here the fact that we refer to people sometimes by their first name and sometimes by their last name really is infuriating to me <laughs> already. Uh, Darcy's magnificent estate. Their peaceful, orderly world seems almost unassailable. Elizabeth has found her footing as the, oh my God, Chatelain of the great house. <laughs> they have two fine sons, Fitzwilliam and Charles. Elizabeth's sister Jane and her husband Bingley live nearby. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I can't. <laughs> um, I got lost. Live nearby. Her father visits often. There's optimistic talk about the prospects of marriage for Darcy's sister, Georgiana, and preparations are underway for their much-anticipated annual autumn ball. Then on the eve of the ball, the patrician ideal is shattered. A coach careens up the drive carrying Lydia, Elizabeth's disgraced sister, who, with her husband, the very dubious Wickham, has been banned from Pemberley. She stumbles out of the carriage, hysterical, shrieking that Wickham has been murdered. With shocking suddenness, Pemberley is plunged into frightening mystery. Inspired by lifelong passion for Austen, P.D. James masterfully recreates the world of Pride and Prejudice, electrifying it with the excitement and suspense of a brilliantly crafted crime story, as only she can write it. So the other, like, the back inside cover talks about the author, and I just wanted to say this part too, because this was uh, news to us. Yeah. P.D. James also wrote Children of Men, which that uh, kind of fits into the sci-fi wheelhouse so i feel like we should have known this but i'm gonna be honest and say i didn't even know children of men was a book yeah i i had only ever known about it as a movie i want i might have heard somewhere about how like the movie was an adaptation of a book but never thought about that loved the movie and so that was when we saw that i think we both looked at each other just i got i got excited i was like maybe maybe this is gonna be better than i thought maybe maybe yeah (laughs) Okay, so that was our by the cover. And as you can see, uh, I think the only thing we got right was a carriage careening. Yeah, and well, in like the time period. Yeah. I mean, I was about 100 years too late, but. (laughs) (laughs) But that's okay. I guess I didn't make a concrete guess there. Yeah, so needless to say, what a great first book for us to exemplify what kind of crappy literary people we are because yeah. neither of us have actually read Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. In fact, the most that I know about Pride and Prejudice is that Bridget Jones's diary is loosely based on yeah. it. And, and I will say, so after after we picked the book up, um, I did immediately go home and watch the Kira Knightley version of the film Pride and Prejudice because, <laughs> I, I mean, I have seen it before. I know that I had seen it before. But I knew that I was going to need a refresher. Speaking of refreshers, I think that'll lead us in good to the just the general overview of this book, because yeah. it does start with a refresher. It Yes, it does. So yeah. the uh, the prologue of the book took me two days oh, to yeah. get through because it was, you know, when you like in the Bible, when it's like so and so begets yes! so and so. <laughs> It was chronology. It was no that it like I had the exact same thought. It was exactly like that. It was like, here, let's slog through this real quick, <laughs> right? But I did make myself a note, PD James, you the real MVP for doing this for me though, because like I did, yeah. I needed that, so yeah. I, I did appreciate that. And I say two days, like 
after work in the evening yeah. after the kids were in bed. So like, yeah, brain capacity was kind of low. Well, in, and in it's general. really I think this is going to be fun too because I listened to the audiobook and you read. I read the book. You, you read a physical copy of the book, and it's another example of how you and I differ. Uh, you're a very visual person. I am an audio person, and I love. Like listening to audiobooks is what got me back into quote unquote reading Mm -hmm. because I could listen to them while I was driving or like, you know, put on some headphones listening while while I wash dishes and stuff. And so I think it's kind of interesting. It helps me understand how to pronounce names. You asked me earlier, how do you say Georgiana? And I was like, oh, it's Georgiana because that's how the the narrator of the audiobook said it. So does does it ever, I don't know, like if you get a bad audiobook reader, does it just ruin the book? Um, I... I have not no I take that back I did have that experience with a bad version of an audiobook when I was going back through the uh Alvin Maker series oh and I decided not to revisit the last book that was available at that because of how horrible the audio <laughs> quality of the but I usually most of the time I'm using Libby now for audiobooks but I've also used Audible which is high quality like they, they right. make sure that it's high quality so i haven't had bad experiences so anyway so we, we start with a, a prologue a little introduction remember what happened in pride and prejudice yeah it's it's basically giving the background of what happened in pride and prejudice the relationships between the characters like, not all of it is fully explained so i still have no idea what happened between wickham and elizabeth and georgiana like there were proposals or not proposals or planned elopements and yeah, like, i don't so really I think, get it <laughs> i think in pride and prejudice elizabeth meets wickham first okay and he mentions that darcy prevented him from getting some inheritance from darcy's father because darcy's father treated wickham like a like, like his own son, son because okay. wickham was like the caretaker's son or something he, he yes. was the son of someone who worked for darcy so, uh, but the problem was, is that Wickham is a greedy bastard and it, it actually goes quite a bit into this concept of, you know, like, oh, you can't let the lessers get above their station because then they're going to want more than they can actually have. And that's a bad thing. And that's yeah. exactly what happens with Wickham. And in a bit of a fit, he makes this like not sincere proposal to Georgiana, Darcy's younger sister in an attempt to get in on some of that okay. good, good cash, right? But she was maybe kind of into it? Well, she was kind of taken by him a little bit, but at the same time wasn't. Okay. I think, like, somewhere in there she recognizes that he's a dick, right? She's like, ooh, he hot, but not for me. Yeah, and so he he bounces. But he tells his version of the story to Elizabeth, and so that's where Elizabeth's prejudice of Darcy's pride <laughs> creates the problem of the story, right? And okay. so that's where that is, yeah. Okay. But that's that's basically all the prologue is, though. It's giving yeah. you the background that you need and then uh, explaining that this takes place six years later. Yeah. One thing that I do love, and I think she, she does this actually right before the prologue. I think it's an author's note of just her like, hey, uh, Jane Austen. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> like, I love it because she's like, not only am I unworthy, right? Like, bow down, I am unworthy. But how dare I put your characters <laughs> through all this horribleness after they've supposedly had their happily ever after, right? So I thought that was funny. That's where I got my cheeky out of the book that I was okay. waiting for, yeah. So the book is broken down into books. So the section of the novel are the, what, five books, right? Six books. Six books, okay. So yeah, we're going to very quickly not go into too much detail, which we did with the prologue there, Um <laughs> 
just each section of the book, this is what happens. So Okay. Yeah. So the book one is The Day Before the Ball. This is mostly Elizabeth talking about how stressful the planning is for having to do this big ball and who's invited and all the blah 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 all the crap you have to do yeah flower arrangements and yeah and all all the social worries about being a rich woman yeah <laughs> uh, and that's that's basically yeah it. and there and there is a little bit of the more recent backstory there too about like oh I've been you know the lady of Pemberley for this long and we have kids yeah. now and this is Anne's ball, which is Darcy's mom. And so she was beloved by the common folk and all this stuff. And so, but it is a very big to do mm-hmm. for the community that is built up around this estate. So, I, my takeaway from this section was really like she is sort of this stereotypical woman of that period where her life is centered around society mm-hmm. and trying to manage other people's relationships. Well, that, but also there, there is the commentary in there of we are responsible for the lives of these lesser people. That's true. Which sometimes... I'm, I'm thinking more of like her sisters. Sure. Yeah. Sometimes I do see it a bit as an apologist for rich folk, you yeah. know, like, oh, yes, you know, our lives. Oh, we have to put on balls all the time and it's difficult and no, oh, all this, all these stresses. <laughs> but also, oh, we are responsible for the livelihoods of all the poor people around us, like... <laughs> But yeah, and, and I think it does touch into some of the tension with their younger sister who does marry Wickham mm-hmm. in Pride and Prejudice and how they are not... Well, she sister, whose name is... Lydia. Lydia, is kind of welcome at Pemberley, but Wickham is not. 100% not. Yeah, they, he has not been received. There's the commentary about how Lydia and Wickham sometimes visit Jane and mm-hmm. Bingley and stay with them, but... I mean, the consensus is that they're a pain in the ass. Yeah. So that's uh, book one. Oh, oh, and then there's also this bit about Georgiana and, like, she's got her two suitors. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, the problems of a proper... Right. <laughs> of like, a proper who's, lady. Who's the right person for her? Basically, it comes down to, do I choose love? Or do I choose status? A yeah, a proper marriage. So yeah, that's that. Book two is the body in the woodland. So this is where all the stuff from the inside cover kind of happens. Lydia shows up unannounced the night before the ball. Everybody's like chilling, hanging out, singing around the piano. Yeah, uh, but it's also like a dark and stormy night. It's not it stormy, is. but it's very windy. It's extremely windy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a dark and gusty night. But so Lydia shows up in a carriage and she's hysterical, saying Wickham's dead yeah and immediately all of the men are like hush now sweet girl <laughs> get her inside get her inside her, yeah. i'm sure everything's fine <laughs> what it, like call the doctor and get some opium for her it's they don't say opium but it's yeah. like get the doctor and drug this woman yeah <laughs> she's very much the hysterical woman and then the yeah the coachman or whatever you call him he's like nah man I heard gunshots too, and they're like, "Oh, we must mount a yeah, rescue." Now that now that a man has said something, <laughs> yes. we have to do. Now, um, I am I am now officially going to reveal my favorite character. Okay, it is the coachman. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> so I I'm pretty sure his his name is Pratt. I think that's the one that goes by Pratt in the story. And the reason why he is my favorite character is because he is so pure. Like he is, he's very dedicated to to being, his horses. Yeah. <laughs> To his horses. he Everything he talks about is in reference to how the horses were feeling at that time. That's and for whatever, like, for absolutely no other reason than just, like, this man is a pure spot and all this 
British period tomfoolery that like I just like you can just see him especially if you hear um the way that the narrator does the audiobook you could just see this man like wringing his hat in his hands while he's talking to the lord and you know oh but the horses they sure had a fright all that kind of stuff like I don't know so that's he's my favorite character so there all right I, I, that was not my guess okay um okay so they decide that they need to do a search party out mm-hmm. in the windy night yeah but they still, they think that they're just going to find these guys, like, walking down the road. Yeah. And they don't. No. They find Wickham covered in blood, crying over the body of his friend. Yeah. Denny. Captain Denny, I think, yeah. is his name. Yeah. And he professes, it's my fault. I've killed him. It's my fault. Like, he's, he says that several times. He was my only friend, mm-hmm. my best friend, and I've killed him. And so then they pick him up. They've brought a stretcher with them. We go through a really long slog of them deciding, like, what is the lordly way to proceed? Yeah. It's all about how is it going to be perceived by the magistrate. Yeah. I do feel like we have done ourselves one disservice here by not mentioning something. Uh, I am going to go back a little bit. There is this whole thing about a family that lives in a house out in the woodland. Yes. So it is the... He used to be a footman or a coachman for the Pemberley estate. He's this old man now, and he polishes the silver the mm-hmm. night before the ball. And so he's been up at the house doing that. But his wife, his daughter, and his bedridden, sickly son are basically always out in the house in the woodland. And there's like a whole side story. Yeah, well, I was going to say there's a local legend about Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. ghosts in the woods. So people are kind of sketched out about these woods in general. So th- they are the only ones that are willing to stay out there. Yeah, yeah. And some of it has to do with Darcy's like granddad or great granddad or yeah, something. Yeah, that's actually who I thought was going to be your favorite character. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I just he was such a badass. He's like, my dog died. Fuck the world. Boom. <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, he's not, I don't consider him a character because he's only talked about. Well, yeah, yeah, that's that's why I thought it was like, a okay, he's like a minor. Oh, I see. No, no, no. He um, referenced multiple times about. Yeah, but he was, he was a shut in. He built this house out in the woodland on the estate. Didn't want anything to do with being a lord. And it has a lot, you know, Darcy has some hangups about like, I have to be a proper man and, you know, all this stuff. But yeah, so this grandpa, he, he shut himself up out there. Didn't even have any servants. Like, oh my gosh, like, how did the man survive? And all he cared about was his dog, Soldier, and when Soldier died, he killed himself and asked to be buried by Soldier, and the family was like, no. (laughs) But anyways, that's like this whole side thing, but this family lives in that house that he he had built for himself out there, so... Okay, so then I think we're to the next section. Book three is Police at Pemberley. So this is the next day. We've I, I have to say this multiple times because this is how it felt. We slogged through every possible step of like, what do you do? Who stands yeah. guard? Who does this? Should we eat? Should we offer other people yeah. food? Who do we tell? Which I think that goes into, I have to write a Jane Austen book. That is also a mystery novel. And like the style of Jane Austen and like that time period and authors, those kinds of novels was just endless words to say they sat around. You know, yeah, what I mean? it's like, just so much tedium. Yeah. 
I actually, I specifically wrote down, like, as I was listening to this, I feel like I need to go back to high school lit. Because, <laughs> I mean, again, like, this is the kind of stuff that you, this is True. literature. That, especially, like, what just, like, a common person on the street would think of literature. Yeah. And I think probably something that really turns people off from reading just any books is I think they think to their experience in high school of reading books like this that is just there are so many words to say they ate dinner. Yeah. You know, and I mean, sure, there's to be appreciated the way that things are written and kind of the ideas that are explored through all that, but it can very much be exactly that, a slog. So So uh book three is the police at Pemberley. So this is where Darcy has gone and gotten the magistrate hardcastle yeah so darcy hardcastle and this other guy are the three magistrates for the county or whatever but he can't be the magistrate over this he can't be the investigator because this happened on his estate right so they go out they get him they come back interview everybody look at the body that's basically it. That's what I did, happens. I did really like the scene where they actually go and look at the body and they have the coroner mm-hmm. and the local doctor are both looking at it because it, it's an interesting little picture into forensics before Oh, forensics. I loved, I loved so the like part. CSI Pemberley was what this scene was. There was a part where they were like, oh, wouldn't it be great if you could test the blood and know yes. whose blood it was? Yeah, and they're like, yeah. that'll never happen. Yeah, yeah. Like, sir, we are working in science here. And not, it wasn't exactly like that, but it was like a little on the nose. That's like, true. Yeah, I enjoyed that scene. The talk about like, oh, you can tell that he fell onto his face because there's a leaf here, you know, things like yeah. that. So I enjoyed that little scene because it did very much feel like a commentary on like how far yeah. murder mystery investigations and i think therefore the genre of mystery how different it is depending on the time period that you're using i will say based on that conversation and like how uh, they kind of were at this point i really thought that the the resolution of everything is going to be that he tripped and fell down and killed himself ah like like he fell on a rock oh Uh, well we haven't talked too much about predictions like as we go through the book and i don't want to slog up our review of the outline or whatever but uh I was sure that the colonel, who is Darcy's cousin, I believe, they both have Fitz. Fitzwilliam is the, there. Are five, I think, Fitzwilliams yeah, at least in this three because there's Darcy, his son, and the colonel. I was so sick of the word Fitzwilliam, and sometimes <laughs> they use it, and sometimes they don't. Yeah, well, sometimes someone calls Darcy Fitzwilliam, and I yes. keep forgetting that that's his name. Anyway, so the colonel, because he rides off. In the night, remember, mm-hmm. after the dinner, before the the coach comes in and everything. And I was like, oh, he, he's he sus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that's what, like, I spent almost the entire book thinking it was him. Yeah, and he's one of uh, Georgiana's suitors. So yeah. it gets entangled into, you know, some of that stuff. So, okay, so we have our investigation. Then what happens? Uh, book four is the inquest. And this is the point where I was like, God, finally something's going to fucking happen. <laughs> Because I, I was so bored through yeah. all of this stuff. And that's why like it took me so long to finish yeah. the book because I'm like, nothing's happening. So uh, the inquest is kind Still of like boring. An, an informal trial. <laughs> they they uh, they, they gather. They through it. It's like, oh, it all builds up to the inquest, the inquest. And then they're like, oh, uh, we're, we're really not going to listen to anybody. And it's that it's yeah. over by. I mean, they, they, <laughs> they pull some people. They have Pratt. 
talk about, you know, how the horses, the horses were, were startled through the whole thing. They talk about the innkeeper. Okay, so so we really do need to go back. So, like, the whole thing with the coach, it was Lydia, Wickham, and their friend Denny in this coach. Mm-hmm. And they had stopped at this tavern mm-hmm. or, like, inn or whatever. They were going to use the inn's coach to take Lydia to Pemberley, drop her off, and then the two guys, because Wickham's not allowed at Pemberley, yeah. they were going to go on to another tavern and like stay there so that Lydia could come to the ball. Now, this was all unbeknownst to the Darcys, because if she had asked, they probably would have been refused. Yeah. So they were like, we're just going to roll up, shove her out the door and, and move on. Tuck and, and so roll, Lydia. what ended up happening was something happened in between the inn and Pemberley. And so yeah. that's, so they had the innkeepers talk about like, well, what did you see while they were, you know, all yeah, the innkeeper, the innkeeper's wife, mm-hmm. they talked to the carriage driver. Who the hell do they not talk to? Who's in the goddamn carriage? Yeah, they don't talk. Well, yeah, because she's too hysterical. She can't be uh, expected to. You Lydia know. doesn't even have to stay. Like, why does no one ask her what happened? Why is she just like, well, she's a fucking psycho? Yeah, well, see, I, the thing is, is that she she stayed at the carriage. So did the. Uh, the but they're coachman. like nobody knows what conversation happened in the carriage. Oh yeah, uh, really? Yeah. Well, I I do wonder because there is. I think it's still a law that like. A spouse cannot be compelled to testify against their spouse, right? I mean, you would think that that's not what she'd be doing. But... Yeah, you would think she would want to clear him. But yeah, they don't even ever, they, they do not ever consider asking her. And I thought like, oh, it's a woman thing. But then they have the wife of the innkeeper. So yeah. like, I don't get it. Yeah. I don't understand why they never asked her. Um, And so the inquest is basically, I think the idea is that like they have to figure out. Whether it's going to go to a trial. Yeah. Or, or like, is there enough evidence to suspect that Wickham is the one that that committed this murder I yeah. think is the is the thing and so they have a jury of 12 good men and they decide that yes they do think that there is enough evidence to suspect that Wickham is the murderer so Wickham is then I believe taken to jail yeah uh and I think that's the end of the inquest yeah part. and then book five is the trial and this is like Basically, in my opinion, all of the real plot and action happens yeah, the, here. Yeah. A lot of the story comes out, a lot of the um, the connections and, and stuff. Maybe, maybe that's what I found frustrating about the beginning of the book is because I like breadcrumbs. Yeah. I like to be able to guess what's going to yeah, happen. Yeah. You're, you're a predictor. Yeah. And there was, I don't think, anything in there. Yeah to lead you along the path of suspecting what actually happened. No, there I, I I completely agree with you. Like there were there were definitely things where it's like that's suspicious, that's suspicious, you know, but there was not I did not feel like there was enough. And I thought we were going to get a little bit more out of like that autopsy scene, you yeah. know, um, of and we got a little bit cuz it was like it definitely had to be was he shot? No, he was yeah. hit in the face. But the actual killing blow was the back of his head, right? right? And like all this stuff. So yeah, by the end of the book, when when you actually find out what really happened, I think we should just go ahead. I mean, we've we've talked. Okay, well, the, the so trial the, happens. They find Wickham guilty. Yeah, and he's going to be hung. Yeah, yeah, and of course that that can't happen to the Darcys. What a scandal to this good named family. Yeah. So yeah. there's there's this uproar and. In the uproar of the courtroom after the verdict has been delivered, this woman who we've only just been really introduced to. Well, Darcy recognizes her, but we have not heard hide or hair of this woman until now. Yeah. 
uh, runs out and then jumps in front of a carriage and gets run over. And so and there's, a, there's a dead woman out front and then a soon-to-be-dead man inside. Yeah. So it's and, just... and we absolutely do not care about the, the death of this woman, by the way. Uh, we, we only care about what's going to happen to Wickham and yeah. the, the impact it's going to have on the family's reputation. Oh, and all the, and this part happens in London. So now we have this, oh, now we're moving society to London and how London is different than country estates. Yeah. After that happens... We don't even have time to be like, holy crap, a woman just died because now the uh, a couple of people from back at the Pemberley estate area show up and they're like, no, we have a confession. Yeah, they at this last moment. So everything's going complete mayhem. Yeah. They show up and they're like, there's this letter that you have to read. Yeah. Judge. <laughs> Judge. And so they open up this letter and it's from the ailing son the out in the woods. The guy who can't even get out of bed, apparently, everyone thinks. Yeah, and I think I think he has died. By the time they're reading the letter, he's already dead. Yes, he gave his confession on his deathbed. Yeah, yeah. at that point, he was dying. So in this letter, he says, basically, I found out that my sister was messing around with an army guy. Mm-hmm. And he was real mad about that sister's already engaged to somebody else Mm -hmm. and so an army guy shows up at the house Mm -hmm. and he's like i this yeah he's like i must protect my sister's name and virtue i'm I'm gonna gather all my strength so he hobbles his happy ass outside and uh hits the army guy yeah army guy then falls down yeah and hits his head on the grave. So, there so you I go. was I was partially you right. Get, you get you get partial credit. Yeah. yeah. On the dog's grave. So that's where the whole story with the, the yeah, soldier of course, dog or whatever you know. comes in. Uh but yeah, so like we get this confession and the judge is like, Well, the jury already found you guilty, so we can't do anything about that. <laughs> but and then there's this whole thing about like, we're gonna get you a royal pardon and you'll be fine. And yeah. so and then after that, the colonel takes Darcy aside and he's like, I'm gonna tell you the whole story. From my perspective, and I want you to hear it before Wickham gets out of jail, and he's going to want to tell his side of the story. So here's the fun part where we get to hear the whole story three more times. Yes. Um, yeah. I. Okay. Yeah. That also frustrated yeah. me. Uh, there is one criticism that I think we can fairly have about this book is that everyone tells the same thing several times. Yeah. And everyone explains everything to each other as if they weren't there. Yeah. And that happens a lot, and that's kind of annoying. Um, yeah. But so the colonel gives his explanation for his very odd after-dinner ride from way back in the beginning of the book. Now, I will say, when we got the little side story about the family that lives in the house in the woods, there is this whole story about how, like, she goes to visit this other sister who mm-hmm. works at some inn somewhere far away, and there's this whole thing about, like, she has too many kids. I'm going to go help her as she bears this newest baby that she's about to have. And then she comes back with the baby so that grandma and grandpa can see the baby, you know. And so they're going to help take care of it for a little while, you know, so that the sister and her husband that are far away can whatever. As soon as I read that, I was like, no, nah, that's her baby. Oh, like, see, I, I didn't think that at I, all. I clocked it because, like, you do not have this Victorian or whatever time period this is. I can't think of what it, Edwardian, maybe. Uh, England. Every single story has to do with some chick getting pregnant <laughs> out of wedlock and the entire machinations that women go through yeah. to hide this and save face. That happens. Like, that is that is the trope yeah. of this time period. So I was like, okay. And so then... 
And Darcy is suspicious of the colonel with his, like, midnight ride and, you know, all right. this. But he immediately accepts the gentleman's word when he just says, oh, like, I went to talk to this lady. Yeah, even though, oh, well, we didn't mention this part, but Darcy wakes up in the middle of the night to see the colonel burning, burning a, a letter. letter. Yeah, yeah. And he's <laughs> like, I'm just not going to bring that up. Yeah, ever. I'm just going to, I'm going to roll over. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, they're sleeping in the library because they're worried that some killer is out in the woods. Anyway. With my suspicion that this girl that lives in the woods, that the baby is her baby, I'm like, oh, that's the colonel's baby. Uh The colonel who's trying to get Georgiana actually knocked up some, you know, lower woman and he's going to go pay her off or, you know, whatever. Uh, So wrong about that. Well, sort of. It's not the colonel's baby. Right. It's Wickham's baby. Surprise. Yeah. So the soldier, if, if everybody remembers from Pride and Prejudice, Wickham was a soldier. So it, it comes out that basically any time that Lydia would come visit Pemberley, he would stay at ends. Or if he didn't have enough money, he would apparently just rough it outside. Yeah. And, and that so, seemed totally normal to everybody for some reason. Yeah. And so he would just, I mean, he he didn't let people know, but apparently he spent a lot of time hanging out in the woods the woodland of Pemberley, the overgrown, not properly kept woods of Pemberley. And that's where he happened to come across, uh, and I cannot remember the girl's name. I think name. it's Louisa. Louisa, that's right. He and Louisa meet, and they have like a little tryst, you know. Uh, another thing about how like in this time period, the unfaithfulness of men is just like, well, you know, it is what it is. And women that get pregnant, how dare they? They're going to yeah. be a disgrace to the family, you know, all that. And so uh, it's his baby. There's this whole thing where she goes to visit her sister to hide the fact that she's pregnant so that, like, the people that know her don't know, you know, all this stuff. They have a whole plot for, like, okay, here's how we're going to cover all this crap up. Yeah, we're gonna Wickham's going to pay her off. And, yeah. Yeah, all this. Like, they were going to. It, it yeah. comes, the, the woman who threw herself under the carriage, surprise also, this is Wickham's sister? Yeah. Which was just like a real weird thing to yeah, throw in there, there. There's a whole thing about how she is a con artist. And she herself. is she from Pride and Prejudice? Like she's in there? So I don't remember if she's in she's definitely not in the movie. Um but the story is that she had a long time ago They were gonna like make her Georgiana Georgiana's Yeah. Uh, uh like her companion. Yeah. A paid friend <laughs> for a rich girl. To basically kind of keep her in line and make sure she stays a proper she's, lady. She's and... super sketchy and... Yeah, well, the whole thing comes out because, like, Wickham, growing up on the estate and being around the affairs and everything like that, knows that, like, after Darcy and Georgiana's mom dies, she needs someone. And the options were, like, their mean aunt mm-hmm. or hire a friend yeah a friend for hire and so wickham lets his sister know and his sister shows up but she is she's a blackmailer she you know she has made she's a self-made woman and she is and and, for whatever reason she really wanted that baby yeah she wanted a baby and so there was this whole thing where the colonel was gonna work with this lady to make a payment to louisa to yeah adopt the baby basically but the original idea was that the baby was going to go live with Louisa's sister who right. runs as a... But then they decided they didn't want the baby. And so it was this whole, like, game of hot potato, basically, with the yeah. baby where Wickham was... He wanted to come see that the baby was real, deliver the money, which the colonel loaned to Wickham because mm-hmm. Wickham saved someone's life that was important to the colonel when they were in the military. His nephew, I yeah. think. Anyway, none of that matters. It's this whole convoluted story about... 
A girl got knocked up by Wickham. Surprise, surprise, Wickham's a dick. And they're all trying to cover it up. And in the process, there was a case of mistaken identity. Somehow, the sickly brother finds the strength to defend his sister's honor and smacks a guy in the face who then falls over and hits his head. Uh, there is some suspicion that Louisa and their mom, they helped. Yeah. They helped cover it all up, cleaned up the murder weapon, burned yeah. any blood off of his clothes and stuff like that. So the end. The resolution is essentially they send the baby off with, it's it's somebody that like the maid knows, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's it's very like, what, what's the term called? Like, deus ex machina. Like, it's just oh. like, it. We found the we found the yeah. resolution. Like, oh look, the yeah, the lady's maid who yeah. I was like my prediction was like she was the one that was gonna be the murderer. She's like, Oh yeah, no, I know someone who who would love to have a kid. And they're like, Great. Yeah. And then Wickham and Lydia go off to America. Yeah, they go off to America to, to raise horses. Yeah. And they're super thrilled about it. Everybody's happy because they don't have to deal with them anymore. Oh, and um Elizabeth's pregnant. Elizabeth is pregnant. All is well. Women are birthing babies and no one's uh, reputation has been ruined. Yeah. So I like in the whole story, I, I if the whole book had been like those last two sections, I would yeah. have liked it a lot more. Yeah. But I just like the whole beginning of it was so slow and I don't understand why we had to throw all of these twists and turns into like one section. Like the sister could have been come out way earlier yeah you know yeah it was yeah i don't know i mean i am not an avid reader of mystery stories so i i don't know if i can really criticize the structure so much but it was it really did feel like my my biggest thing and the reason why i felt like it was a slog was because everyone told everyone everything over and over and over again you know and it, it was a lot of like as you know when i was this blah 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 it's like no one is genuine. Everybody is putting on the face of who they're supposed to be at all times, even in their own house, even with their spouse. Yeah. You get a couple of moments of like genuine, like you're my husband, you're my yeah. wife between Darcy and Elizabeth there, which I think probably people who are fans of yeah. Pride and Prejudice probably really like. But I, I do think like, so for you and I, and I think for you in particular, you've mentioned this, the struggle with this book is the time period. And this concept of femininity and yeah yeah that's that's what it comes down to for me and it's not like this is obviously you can tell wasn't my favorite book i don't regret reading it but i really struggle with things from this time period and it comes down to not being able to identify with the female characters because they're so oppressed you know and they're like like elizabeth never questions that like she just accepts that this is the way that life is which i think is really interesting because um at least in the movie (laughs) um liz well and i think and this is something that i wrote down for myself too is like what is the draw for women to stories like this because i mean it is very i mean like to think about like bridgerton is Mm -hmm. so popular right now you know, Pride and Prejudice. But I like that. Remained. I like Bridgerton because they have modernized it. That's fair. But I, but I, I was kind of like writing down to myself, what is it that draws women to stories in this time period? 
it's always about some clever intellectual uncommon woman yeah but there wasn't in this but one. they're not yeah well so and that's what i find kind of interesting is because elizabeth in pride and prejudice is you know she's not going to compromise herself for a man she's you know he, he has to be her intellectual mm. uh uh equal you know and all and and like she she reads books <laughs> like what the fuck and so the change of her to like the domestication of yeah. elizabeth uh in this book i think is kind of weird but I also think, what is the, is there, is there even a feminist message in this? Because I don't think there is. It's this weird, Do you like, know, the feminist message in this book is Henry Alveston, who we didn't talk about, ooh. and who is my favorite character. Henry Alveston is just like, he's a good guy. Yes. He's just, he's a great guy. Yeah. Yes. Henry Alveston had my favorite quote in the book. Oh, yeah. Okay. What is, what was that? Uh, so this is at the point when they are... Trying to decide where Georgiana should go. Yeah. Uh, after they've discovered the murder, so they're they're standing around in a group with her in the group. Yeah. Talking about whether she should stay there or go visit someone else or what she should do. And oh, is this when she wanted to help write letters? Uh, the, I like, think it's oh, before no, the ball that. Is not going to happen. Or yeah. Okay. Go ahead. So she, uh, they're standing around talking about whether it's proper for her to stay or not stay. Yeah. And Henry says this, Forgive me, sir, but I feel I must speak. You discuss what Miss Darcy should do as if she were a child. We have entered the 19th century. We do not need to be a disciple of Mrs. I don't know who this is. Wollstonecraft? Yeah, I don't know. To feel that women should not be denied a voice in matters that concern them. It is some centuries since we accepted that a woman has a soul. <laughs> is it yes. not time we accepted that she also has a mind? <laughs> yes. That is my favorite quote from this book. I am a big Henry Alveston fan. Yeah, I think it's like Hardcastle and Darcy and like maybe the Colonel or something are all like, okay, sir, maybe calm down. We, You've made your point, okay? <laughs> yeah. That's true. I remember, yeah, that is that is really good. So my, my questions with this were like, you know, are these women like really overcoming any, what is the commentary on like the oppression of the time and their oh so privileged lives? Like yeah. the problems of women in this time are, nothing you know i mean like yes we're we are coming at it from our own lens and like a very very different mindset now than what people would have had i mean yeah the the just the you know i'm the one who has to have a baby and good chance that's gonna kill me yeah yeah (laughs) uh but what i i just i find it interesting that this time period these kinds of genres you know like that there is such an obsession with it when I seek out my entertainment as escapism, yeah. and my escapism is not take me back to a time when shit would have been so much worse for me. Yeah, you I know think, what I mean. I think some people really like the uh, like the fashion of it and the like the prim and proper. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is you know, I mean, what we have lifestyles of the rich and famous. People go nuts for royal yeah. weddings. There I is, think it's kind of like yeah. that, and it's it, it's a time when like. It almost feels like the common person also got to live sort of like a like a royal lifestyle. Like I, they're not there. There royalty. is that transition um, of like the common people are getting a bit more, you know, yeah. and they're they're kind of getting their come up. I, I think that uh, I did end up watching all of Downton Abbey. <laughs> um, so like I don't know like how I can sit here and say that like I don't like this time period when I mean Downton Abbey's like World War One into World War Two, I think, but. Um, but it, it deals with a lot of the same things of, like, the privileged and the people that serve them, you know. And I think Downton Abbey has a lot more of the, like, times they are a-changing yeah. kind of stuff. But um, 
but yeah, so I think it, it probably is that glimpse into the lives that you could never have or, yeah. you know, whatever. Um, and white soup. What is white soup? <laughs> like, why does it sound like cocaine to I these mean, people? maybe. I don't know. I honestly, like, I looked it up and I couldn't, like, I couldn't figure out what, you said something about, like, maybe they put booze in it. I think they made a, a reference that, like, they don't pour that in until the end. And it was, like, some obscure thing that I didn't really know what it was. But I, I think it's alcohol. Yeah, so there I was think- a part of me that was, like, it's absinthe. It's, <laughs> like, I honestly thought that, like, are they putting cocaine into their soup? I thought it was, like, a euphemism or something. But, like, I looked it up and it's just, like, it's just soup. One of the things I read said they would... Like it's soup, but they would serve it as a drink, and it just sounded so gross to me. Yeah, but I, I guess know. it was good. I, I don't, don't know. know. But it was. I mean, I guess you know, when when your options are limited for entertainment and you know places to eat, um, <laughs> maybe you you get your kicks where you can. I guess. Yeah. So, having read this, mm-hmm. would you read Pride and Prejudice? No. Yeah. I like. I. I mean, like I said, I I watched the movie. And I I really like the the movie that has Kira Knightley playing Elizabeth. So no, I struggle with the uh, the the tedium of that writing style. I yeah. really do. I think Pride and Prejudice. It, my guess is that it's all the things I disliked about this book, and only that. Yeah, I mean, I will say that the benefit of that kind of writing style, and I think that's something that a lot of people give Jane Austen a lot of credit for, is her little, like, quips mm-hmm. that she will throw into that. Because kind of, every now, like, that would come out in this book, and you'd hear them every now and then, I'd be like, tee that was funny, yeah. you know. But is it worth the mental power it takes me to unpack all of those words? Not often. Yeah. So, no, I would not... Um, I definitely wouldn't pick a book like this on my own. I would not revisit that genre unless, like, unless the podcast makes me, I guess. Yeah. I will. Uh, I will. But, but I mean, that's not to say that it's bad, right? Because it yeah, is. Yeah, it's, it's definitely out of our wheelhouse. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. Mm-hmm. And definitely more than if I had chosen it. Yeah. Myself. And I don't know. It was an experience. I might maybe I'll go watch the movie. That's yeah. what it's led me to. I never wanted movie. to watch the movie before, so it's changed my perspective at least yeah. that much. And I and I will tell you this: my guilty pleasure in this time period, in this you know whatever, there is a movie called Becoming Jane. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, J- that's Jane, the sister Jane. No, it is Jane Austen. Oh, it's Jane. Okay, yeah. So it is. It is basically Jane Austen lives Pride and Prejudice in a way. Okay. And the kind of takeaway of it is that, like, she uses her own life to inspire this story or something like that. It is it is a fictionalization of that concept, okay. 100% is my understanding. But it has Anne Hathaway as Jane Austen and James McAvoy as, like, the Darcy character. And and I will say, like, yeah, I, I like James McAvoy. So, <laughs> you know, that that is part of it. But there is a uh, aspect to that story that, like, there is, like, a, a bittersweet heartache to that story that, like, tugs at my heartstrings that, like, it is the movie that I want to put my pajamas on, have a big old bowl of popcorn, and, like, sit on the couch by myself and just gush. Okay. Like, not cry, but just, like, oh, 
bittersweet heartache. Oh, it hurts so good. You know, that kind of thing. So in that Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, Death Comes to Pemberley adjacent stories, Becoming Jane. Okay. Yeah. So I I, I will also watch that. There you go. That's the influence that this has had. Okay, so with... Death comes to Pemberley. Uh, let's let's give ourselves a rating for this. Um, let's say uh, out of five bowls of white soup, what would you give this story? <laughs> um, I'm gonna go with two bowls of white soup, just enough for it to be tipsy. There you go. Okay, I <laughs> assuming I, uh, there's alcohol in the soup. I put it up to three. Okay. I, I gave it. I, I'll give it three bowls of white soup out of five. That's entirely... Two bowls of white soup hold the patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that is... Uh, that's that's mostly what we have here. Now, we are going to go ahead and give our soon-to-be faithful listeners the RSSB coordinates for the next book. Uh, so for us, those coordinates are 12, 6, 1, and five. So just to review that for you, that is row 12, section six, shelf one, book five. Yep. So if you want to choose your own random book using those coordinates, go for it. Uh, it led us to the book News of the World by Paulette Giles. If you want to read along, that's Which what we'll be talking about next. I think it's pretty funny that that is uh, the book that came up for us because another... It, I don't want to say too much because I think I know a little bit more about it than you do. It looks like a Western, which is like one of my least favorite genres. So we're we're off to a bang with uh, <laughs> branching out our horizons here. So that's all we have for this time. Um, if, if you have any ideas of, uh, you know... Things that fun things that we could do with the podcast, please send us an email at a uh, library game podcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the library game. Yeah, and we'll be giving some information out ahead of time of each podcast to let people know like this is the book that we're reading if you want to read along. Um, also, if you want to send us feedback about how absolutely wrong we were about Death Comes to Pemberley, about Jane Austen, about Absolutely, and we'll read your comments. Yeah, yeah, we like, will and on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, we might even invite you to come be on the podcast if you're if you're available. Because, like we said, we don't really know what we're talking about, but that's fine. All right, till next time. Happy reading. Adios.